Greetings and welcome to another episode of Stamper Cinema. As always, I am your host. My name is Andrew. Thank you very much for downloading this latest episode. And if you are listening to it at the time of publishing, happy Halloween to you. It is October 31st as of today. Of course, you can be listening to it any day. And it's no longer October 31st unless you only listen to this podcast on Halloween. So happy Halloween to you anyway. Um, now that we've gotten that out of the way, all month long, we've been doing like a whole series of horror film discussions. And it kind of culminates into this this one. This will be our final episode of this series. And we're going to be talking about Alien, one of my all-time favorites. What a, what a great movie. The, the guest that selected it, you're going to love him. He's awesome. He's a podcast host. He also is a, uh, a filmmaker, which we're going to talk about both his podcast and this really freaking cool documentary that he did. Now, I could go on and on and on and kind of hype this episode up, but shoot, it's Halloween. I want to get this episode out to you. So enjoy. Happy Halloween to you or whatever day that you're listening to this. Happy whatever day to you. And let's get into podcast we've got tyler smith again tyler thank you very much for for hopping on the podcast how are you doing man i'm doing all right how are you i'm doing okay if i understand correctly not only do you have a podcast of your own but you also have a blog and you dabble in making making films as well do i have that correct I'd say dabble is the right word. Yes. Um, <laughs> because, uh, yeah, I, my, uh, so my day job, I would say, although it often happens at night as well is as a college professor. Um, mm. I teach at a few different schools in Los Angeles. I teach film history, film aesthetics, stuff like that. Um, but I've also, but I, I, I primarily, that's a relatively new development only in the last few years. Um, I came out of the world of, of film criticism. I'm still a part of that, but that's where I started. And so I've been uh, hosting a podcast or rather co-hosting a podcast called Battleship Pretension for uh, 15 years now. We just recorded our 800, 800th episode. Uh, as, of, as of this recording, I know this episode's not going to post for a while, but um, uh, I just love talking about movies and we would have, we have guests on uh, from the world of entertainment and it's just so much fun. And it's, and it also, you know, there's that, this idea of like, when you surround yourself with people that can, you know, speak well about this topic, it just, it forces you to be able to, to, to speak better and think better of it. Uh, and so I really, uh, I definitely feel like as a college professor, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be what I am if it weren't for the podcast, um, and, and doing that, uh, consistently every week for, for 15 years, um, so, so yeah, that's Battleship Pretension. I've been doing that for a while. And then, um, I found myself with a free summer in 2019. I mean, I, I taught a couple, I would also teach like this, uh, this, uh, summer program for, uh, exchange students and stuff. But, uh, for the most part, I, I had some time to kill and I had had an idea, um, that was rooted in, when I went back to, I, I went back to school to get my master's degree. Uh, I went to UCLA and I had asked them like, what's something nobody's writing about, uh, or talking about in academia. And one of the things that they had said was like, well, nobody really talks about, uh, the Christian film industry cause nobody takes it seriously. And being, being who I am in my, in my own little corner of the internet, like I I've written and talked at length about the, the Christian film industry. There's a reason nobody takes it seriously because it's not very good. 
But just because it's not very good doesn't mean it's not worth talking about, at least academically. And so I had written a paper in school uh, that I thought like, oh, you know what? This could make actually a pretty good, uh, a, a potentially good like video essay style documentary. So I made a, a film called Real Redemption, The Rise of Christian Cinema. And, uh, and it, it did okay. It uh, got some, some nice uh, comments from, from film critics and stuff. And so as a function of that, I, I did, I tried to make another one or, or rather did make another one uh, in 2021. Once again, I had a summer free um, and I made a film called Valley of the Shadow, the spiritual value of horror. Um, this is another film that was essentially intended for for Christians because being a Christian myself, but also being a movie fan, sometimes those are not seen as being compatible, especially if you enjoy horror as I do. Um, and I just got tired of people saying it was demonic. So I decided I was just going to make a documentary that was sort of a little love letter to, to horror, but also talking about some of the themes that horror can allow a person to explore. And so, uh, so that's been available for a few months, but you know, and, and it's, and it's done well at both Christian and horror festivals, which I'm, which I'm happy about. That's, that's nice to see that neither side feels particularly alienated, uh, Mm -hmm. by the approach. But, um, but yeah, going back to your initial question, um, it's definitely a situation where (laughs) people said like, Oh, what's next for you? It's like, ah, nothing. I, I don't, I don't have any ideas for another documentary. Uh, if something strikes me, maybe I'll pursue it. But at the same time, like I don't consider myself a filmmaker really. Um, it was just something that it felt like an extension of my criticism and my, and my teaching. Uh, and I enjoyed making it, but for the most part, like I've made these two and it's entirely possible that I'll go the rest of my life without making another one. But, but I am proud of them. Uh, I think they're, I think, I think they're okay. They did what I needed them to do. So I guess that's, there's that. Absolutely. As far as free summers now that you've got a couple of uh, two-year-olds in the house, I don't know how many more free summers (laughs) you're going to have going on. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because yeah, uh, summer of 2019, I, I had a lot of freedom to, to make that first one. Summer 2021, uh, I did have, yeah, I was, I'm a, I was a dad of twins, um, who were, uh, at that time, not even a year old. And so when people say like, oh, which one do you think is better? It's like, oh, the first one, the first documentary for sure is better because the second one, I can tell that there are things that I rushed <laughs> and things that, and moments where I lost focus because I, I was just so exhausted. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but I'm still, I'm still fairly proud of it, but if life circumstances definitely, uh, impacted the, the second one. Right now, when it comes to Valley of the Shadows, how long did it take for you to write it? Um, let's see. Probably like a month and a half. Um, and, and thankfully I didn't because, so the first one was very much a one man band kind of thing. I did it on my own. There was a, a small streaming service that was paying me to do it, but paying very little. Uh, so really it was just me and a composer. So I wrote it, I did the voiceover, I edited it, and then the, the composer did the, did the music. Uh, I did not want that to be the case. I didn't want it to be the Tyler Smith show for Valley of the Shadow. And so I, I, another streaming service paid for it and paid significantly more. And so in that case, I, I decided, and I also realized like there are people who know a lot more about horror than I do, uh, including my co-writer Reed Lackey, who has a podcast called, um, the fear of God, 
which discusses horror from a Christian perspective. So it's like, well, this is a guy who, you know, I, I, he's a friend of mine. It's like, I obviously, what, if I have any gaps, he will absolutely, absolutely be able to fill them. And so, uh, so we kind of worked on it, on it together and it took probably, yeah, about a, probably about a month and a half, uh, to write. Um, and then as we were writing it, Bill Oberst Jr. was our narrator and host. And so he was recording stuff. So we had a lot. And then I was editing to what he recorded. And so the, a lot of stuff was happening at the same time. Gotcha. Now, whereabouts was it filmed? I don't, was it filmed in LA? It looks like very Savannah. Uh, it was, uh, I believe South Carolina. Um, Bill, Bill was, um, was in, I think he's from South Carolina and he was there, uh, taking care of his parents. And I, I, cause he's normally based in LA. And so I, I was hoping that he would be there, but he's like, no, there's some family stuff going on. I thought, and I said like, okay, well we need to do these video segments. Uh, but I can't fly out there. Is there someone that you trust? Uh, and he's like, yeah, there's a guy out here that I, that I trust. And I said, look, okay, well, let me talk with him. And he and I talked about like what my goals were for sort of the video segments. And, and for the most part, I think they, I think they pulled them off and I was very happy with that. Uh, I feel terrible, you know, it feels so the auteurist in me is just like, Oh, I, they just shot and I wasn't even around. And it was like, gosh, I hope it turns out great. Uh, and it, and it did for the most part. And, uh, and I was very happy with what they did, but yeah, that was shot, um, at, uh, some like tourist location mm. in, uh, in, in South Carolina. Gotcha. Now, as far as not necessarily being right there, I mean, shit, like how many films today, like the director's in a completely different room when they're, when they're, when they're shooting it. Right. So what's I guess there is second unit. Time zone? Yeah, I guess there is the concept of second unit as well. And so I, I'll be like, okay, let's just consider that my second unit. There was no actual first unit because it's the only <laughs> stuff that was shot, but I'll take what I can get. Absolutely. Now, one thing that I'm always kind of curious about, because I know nothing about the, 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 well, I really know nothing about the, the documentary, uh, side of filmmaking, but um, what I was fascinated is within this documentary, hundreds, I would argue like hundreds of clips from different films. I mean, there were, mm -hmm. there were several. Yeah. I mean, I felt like at least a hundred movies were referenced in that documentary. So what I'm kind of curious is like, how do you, how did you decide like the footage that you wanted to use or how many films do you think? were left that you didn't use and, and more importantly how did you get access to that footage i mean is it kind of like under the table like or is it completely like fair use or like it's how does considered that work? it's considered fair use oddly enough you wouldn't think it but every bit of footage that's used is being used to uh illustrate the uh critical point that's being made and that because i there i have a uh an acquaintance here in LA named Rodney Asher, who made a film called, um, room Two Thirty Seven, mm. which is all, which is all about the shining. Right. And, and I remember asking him like, how, how did you, how is this allowed <laughs> to use this much footage, not just from the shining, but from all kinds of other movies, uh, Kubrick films and otherwise. And he said, yeah, he goes, as, as long as the, the clips play into the point that you're making. And I said like, yeah, but fair use, like, from a critical standpoint, from a, from a, uh, an academic standpoint, you know, you're making money on this. You've been paid to make this thing. So how is that allowed? And he's like, it's, it's fine. He goes, when, you know, in the old days of Siskel and Ebert, 
when they would play clips on their show, mm. well, they, that was not a volunteer situation. That was not a for charity situation. Like they were make that was their job. They were making money on that. Uh, and they were using those clips because they were commenting on them or using them to illustrate something that they were, that they were commenting on. And so, uh, so I kind of went based, based on that and, uh, we haven't had any blowback yet because, because I did try to th- think in those terms. I did try to think in terms of like, you know, there are clips that can be used that might, that might sort of, uh, in a very sly or, or smug way sort of comment on things almost ironically. And I thought like, no, I don't think I want to do that because that might not be seen as, as like a, a sincere use of the clip. And I, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to, try and, and stick to the, the letter of the law of, of fair use, because, you know, at the same time, like if you have studios who they made these movies so that they could make money and, and, you know, there are artists and directors who, who made these films and they, and I didn't, I didn't want to feel like I was stealing, uh, any money or anything from anyone. Uh, so I tried to like be as, as, as he was close to the, the, the definition of fair use as possible. So that nobody felt like I was uh, sort of just ripping off clips from their movies, uh, unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then as far, I, and yeah, I mean, there were hundreds of clips used and many, many more that were not used. Uh, and, and I also, there's, there's entire chunks, you know, entire sort of subgenres of horror, uh, that I really didn't get into partially because of the, the audience that the film was intended for. It was intended first and foremost for a Christian audience. And so I tried to keep the movies that we talk about sort of westernized for the most part, uh, talking about like mostly American films, but maybe some British and that sort of thing. Um, so obviously there's all kinds of, you know, Korean horror and Japanese horror and that sort of thing that, that can absolutely have been discussed at length. I, I only have a few clips in there just on principle, but I also, this sounds I think it's the college professor in me that I recognize that there are, there will be students who take my class. And I know that the only reason they're taking the class is because they need a humanities credit and a film class sounds pretty easy. Um, and so I don't, I try to take that into account when I pick the movies that we're going to watch. Not that I want them to be easy, but, or, or not that I want them to just be like, you know, regular popcorn movies or anything like that. But I do, I do think like, okay, we're not going to be watching, you know, some German expressionist movies unless it's a a history film class. But like we're not going to be watching German movies that that have no in the in the in the view of this this uh, student has no bearing on on their life. And so similarly, I want to try and keep things sort of westernized so that at the very least. Uh, the, the viewer who's already coming into this probably a little bit hesitant because of the nature of the, of the documentary, uh, that they don't have to take that extra step to be like, oh man, now we're watching, uh, now we're watching a bunch of Japanese movies and I got to read subtitles. Like, you know, I think that's a dumb attitude, but I'm also trying to be like, you know, when I'm, when I'm trying to convince somebody of something, I'm willing to meet them halfway, maybe even a little bit more than halfway in order to do that. So, so yeah, there are entire, uh, you know, entire countries not heard from, unfortunately. So I don't, 
I don't consider the film. It's comprehensive in certain ways, but it's not nearly as comprehensive as it could be. It's already two hours and 20 minutes. Uh, that's the other thing. Like if I really tried to capture everything, I, frankly, I think you just need to make a miniseries at that point. Cause horror is just so big and so all encompassing. Yeah. It was kind of like a little in search of darkness by like the link when I what, because you had sent me the, the link and I started a couple days ago, finally, you know, like actually like in preparation for this. And then I was like, Oh shit, this is like close to two and a half hours. Let's look, let's, yeah. let's go. And I was enjoying it. Don't get me wrong or anything, but yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot covered on and I think you just, I, I think you hit a, you know, hit a home run to use like a little baseball and out a pun right there. But what I am curious, and we're going to transition into one of the movies that you discuss in the <laughs> documentary, uh, being alien, but I, I'm just kind of curious, did, did you have like a, a personal highlight or one of your, your, uh, moment within the documentary? Like, Oh shit, that was good. That was good. I'm, I'm really proud of that. There's, um, there are little sections. Well, there are sections that were, uh, that I felt closer to than others. Um, in the in the second section of the of the documentary where you talk about the inev- where we talk about the inevitable and the idea mm-hmm. of horror being used as a way to explore the notion of death and illness uh mental physical whatever um i was happy with that one uh, i mean I, I i'm i'm happy with all of it but that one in particular because i think i don't think people see horror they're so understandably it's it's so associated with fear but i think people don't understand how mournful it can be that that a lot of the at the core of that fear is 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 a a a terror of loss uh loss of a loved one loss of something within yourself and so you get to movies like the fly for example which is you know horrifying it's not scary necessarily but it's horrifying but it's also tremendously sad and anybody who's lost someone to something like cancer and of course, the film was made in the 1980s, right in this smack dab in the middle of you know the AIDS crisis. I'm sure a lot of people could relate to that movie, even though the specifics are outlandish and very sci-fi and all that. But the emotional beats are are completely relatable. And so I I'm I was very happy with that uh, that sequence and my composer, you know, because for the most part I I just let him do whatever feels right to him, and then I might make a couple changes here and there. And I was glad that when we got to that section, he came, it, the music he produced was that it was more sad and mournful than it was like tense. Um, and I said like, yeah, that's exactly what I had in mind. And he said, yeah, it's, it felt like that's what it should be. And so I was very happy with that moment. And then there's a couple, you know, there's a couple things that, I mean, you've seen it. It really just kind of goes and goes and goes. It's why it was so difficult to cut down because every topic is meant to just flow naturally into the next so that if you cut anything out, you're like, ah, now I'm kind of requiring the audience to make a jump. Uh, (laughs) and I didn't want to do that. And so I had this moment where, uh, we were talking about vampires and we needed to get to cults. Mm. And I was like, how do we get from vampires to cults? And then I thought, Oh, Renfield, that's how we get from vampires to cults. Uh, and I've always been fascinated with the character of Renfield from Dracula. Um, and just this idea of like the person who is, who's associated with a vampire is not himself a a vampire, but is completely devoted to that thing. 
And so uh, I was excited at the notion of a. It worked out really well for me as a as a transition, but also uh, I was excited to be able to uh, incorporate that character over, very overtly instead of just a couple of clips. Like we actively talk about him, and I was very excited to be able to do that. Just to use one of your own words, as far as you know, as far like horror, the whole but whole idea of eliciting uh, fear. Obviously, horror is a lot more than that, but I'm sure the listeners would like to know what what scares you, you know, or is there, for example, just to use even like a, a film genre, is there like one that that cuts you deep, that one that that, that affects you like this is this is this is a this is more terrifying to me. There was well, I will say that there's one section that as I was editing it, I actually had a nightmare. And that was the section about spiders because mm. I'm terrified of spiders as we all should be. Um, and I, should I, be. <laughs> I regularly, well, you know, it's just, they're, they're a monster, but, um, <laughs> it, I, I regularly have usually in, in times of particular stress in my life, I will have what I uncreatively just refer to as spider nightmares. Uh, they're, easily the, the worst ones. They're the ones that will wake my wife up because I'm like thrashing about so much. Sometimes I will find myself standing because the spider nightmare has so terrified me that I have, I've had to get out of the bed and just stand in the middle of the room, uh, mm. without even fully waking up yet. Uh, and so that sequence definitely, uh, got to me, but, uh, so, you know, the, the, the sort of superficial answer is spiders. But, um, but honestly, I will say certainly loss. I mean, everybody is afraid of loss to a certain extent, but, uh, boy, and you, you know, you, you have, you have a, a child, you become a, you become a parent and man, it just things really, it's, it's so cliche to say, but man, it's true. Things really do change. I'm so scared of, of losing my kids mm, mm-hmm, in some, mm-hmm. in some capacity. And it changes the way I approach with the way I've responded to certain movies. Not to say, not to say that I, I view them negatively, but like I've seen Jaws so many times in my life. I've seen it more than any other film. And I think the film has always treated the death of Alex Kintner, the eight year old boy and his mother. I think it has always treated that very well. Mm-hmm. I think it allows his mom to have a moment of grief. I think it allows us to grieve over it. But when you're a parent, you can see all the mo- you, you can visualize all the moments that are not seen because it's not Mrs. Kittner's story. She went, I have a hard time talking about it without, without tearing up. I've talked about this before. So, uh, on, on my podcast, which is, she and her son just went to the beach to have a good day. Yeah. They're just having a fun day. I take my kids to the mall, uh, nearby because there's a little enclosed play area. I take them so that we can have a nice day and it wound up being the worst day of her life, you know? Um, and she, and that's the thing is like, you're, you're a parent. So you know that when you go with anywhere with your kids, you bring a lot of stuff. She had to gather that stuff up, but not her kid. Mm-hmm. Not her son. Her son is literally just doesn't exist anymore. He was completely eaten by yep. the shark. And so she has to like gather that stuff up, get in the car, go home and 
when you're a parent, there are reminders in every single room of, of your kid's existence. And so like the sheer emptiness of her house must have been so overwhelming. Like I cannot imagine what that must be like. And then of course, to discover that beach should not have been open because mm-hmm. this happened a couple days before. Are you kidding me? Like my little boy, like we would not have gone there to have a good day because it wouldn't have been possible, but some people prioritized other things like it's so that, and, and also of course, children, they're just so, they're so innocent, unsuspecting. Like there's just no, you just want to protect them so much. And when I see movies where children are in danger, sometimes it's, it's fine. And in other cases it feels exploitative. Um, Gene Siskel of Siskel and Ebert to go back to them. Um, he said that one of his, something that instinctively turns him off of a movie is when he feels like a child is put in danger uh, unnecessarily. And I never fully understood why that was like the worst sin in the world. But now that I have kids like, oh, no, I get it. I get it. Like this is an easy way to tap into a primal fear. Uh, and there are movies that will do it for no for no real reason except that. Um, as opposed to something that, that adds a layer of, of emotional complexity to the story like Jaws, or I would say like the, the second, uh, the, uh, aliens, like the character of Newt being yeah. in danger. Um, so I think those are movies that do it well, but there are plenty of movies that don't. Um, and so I do think that, uh, that yes, fear of loss in general, but at this point, the fear of loss of my kids, which has then led to a, a, a a deeper response to movies where things happen to kids or things could happen to kids. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, uh, totally hear that. I mean, I recently watched Jaws for, you know, the, you know, 4 billion time or whatever. And specifically the Alex Kittner death, you know, just really just like kind of hit home a little bit more. And last year I revisited, even though, you know, the movie is a little cheesy and uh, I don't know if it's necessarily held up as well. But I still think it's pretty damn good. But I revisited Pet Cemetery last year, and mm. the the loss of uh, Gage Creed at the like in, in like that you know the end of that first act. It was like oh shit, you know, just a completely different emotional yeah. response that I had to it then versus a book that I read as a kid or a movie that I've seen yeah. dozens upon dozens of times that it's now just affected me in a different way. So yeah, that 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 loss of a loved one, specifically that loss of the innocence and, you know, our children being right there. And it's just, yeah, I can totally, totally relate to that. So with that being super chippy, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, sorry, everybody. Yay. So if we haven't lost yet, let's talk about, let's talk about space monsters. Absolutely. Let's do it. So for this, the convert, you know, for so for the topic of today's discussion, we're really going to be honing in on your movies, a selection, which was Alien. So, Tyler, I'm kind of curious, why did you want to talk about this movie? So Alien is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a top 10 movie for me. Um, and so about like every two or three years, I'll remake my my top 100 movies of all time. And there are a couple of movies, including my current number one, that would start lower on my list. And every time I would make the list, they go a little higher, little higher, little higher. And I have no doubt it's been, it's been at this point, like three years since I last made my list. And I'm pretty sure that if I, that when I make it again, 
Alien will wind up being even higher. I think it's number like seven right now because it is, it is, uh, you wouldn't think that a movie that slow or let's just say meditative could be so rewatchable, but it really is. And, and, and I'm, I'm going to be talking probably quite a bit about, uh, alien versus aliens. Um, cause a lot of people talk about that. They say, which one do you prefer? I think they're both very good. Um, and when I was younger, I preferred aliens cause I think those characters are maybe a little broader and, and they can sort of pull you in a little bit more. And the, the, the concept is a little bit more high concept. Um, but now that first alien, I, I try to find a way to work it into every one, every film class that I teach, because I think it's an absolute masterpiece on, on any number of levels, on a, on a story level, uh, on a character level, on a, on a fright level. But I think more than anything, just on this, this concept of, of pure cinema, just Ridley Scott's understanding of just setting the mood and and creating the world and letting us just be in that world for a while and letting in any circumstance that we're in even before there's any real sense of danger just allowing the film to breathe enough so that we ha- we fully understand the circumstance like the idea that i mean when the film opens everybody's asleep and we're just the camera's just slowly gliding through this ship that's somehow both beautiful and grotesque at the same time. Uh, and it's just letting us live in that ship just for a minute. And then as we're exploring the derelict spaceship, like there is, there are moments of genuine discovery and we're just as curious as, as the characters themselves, what's going on in that ship. And even, uh, so the, the Harry Dean Stanton character, uh, Brett, his death is so drawn out. And I remember my wife, uh, who likes, doesn't love the movie. She always said like, we know he's going to die. So why are we spending so much time leading up to it? It's like, because we know he's going to die. It is, it is, it is sort of forcing us to really anticipate what's about to happen and just live in that space. Uh, because it's anticipation, it's resignation, it's all of these things that so many horror movies I feel like don't don't delve into. Uh, there are plenty of movies where we know we uh, we we pretty much know who's going to die, but the death usually comes quickly, and and it's meant to be more of a shock. This is there's nothing shocking about Harry Dean Stanton's death. We know it's coming minutes before it happens, uh, but Ridley Scott just has the patience to allow us to anticipate that and, and the, the deeper significance to the larger story. And so I, I think it's just a film that it just, it can't help but pull me in. And there are a lot of movies, there are a lot of horror movies that, that they have a strong sense of atmosphere, but they, they want to, they want their story based and there's nothing wrong with that. But I tend to like those less. I tend to like horror movies that really set a mood and allow the atmosphere to really pull you in. It could be an, a- an atmosphere of absolute dread where every moment is agony, or it could be, you know, these moments where you do get bits of relief and then absolute terror. And, and alien is one of those. And I could watch it. Uh, I guarantee that just the fact of you and I talking about it now is going to make me want to watch it tonight, uh, because it is just, uh, such a marvelous, 
such a marvelous film. And I'm, and I would say I'm not, I'm not a big Ridley Scott fan. I, I feel like he has become in the last couple of decades, I think he's become a, a fairly uneven film, certainly an unreliable filmmaker. You know, sometimes he puts out The Martian, which is great. Other times he puts out, well, frankly, he puts out Alien uh, Covenant, which I thought was as wonderful as, as I think Alien is. That's as terrible as I think Alien Covenant is. And so, but that's the thing is, you know, you get this, you get the first Blade Runner and just Ridley Scott was just, you know, bang and even Legend a little bit. He was just banging on all cylinders and was really doing some great work. And I'm, I'm, if nothing else, I'm glad that we got these before he became the filmmaker that he is now. Lot to digest there, but I, I was kind of curious. I, like, I was wondering, well, what are your thoughts on the last duel? Did you get to, did you get to get around to that one? I did not. I've heard, I've heard wonderful things. Um, I saw the other Ridley Scott movie that came out last year, which was House of Gucci. Right. Um, I did not see that one. Uh, yeah, you're fine. You don't, <laughs> you're, you're not missing a whole lot. Uh, it, there's some good, some fun performances, but, uh, but yeah. And so, uh, no, I didn't see Last Duel. It's I, I'm definitely in this position where I, I, as a critic, I just feel like a total fraud because I'm just not able to see as many movies as I used to since becoming a father. And that was one that slipped through the cracks. And everybody said that I should watch it. And being a being a huge fan of Rashomon, which I am, uh, I I probably would enjoy it. Yes. For the record, I, I thought it was it exceeded my expectations. Just you know, I, I didn't going into it, I didn't have high expectations. But I'm like. I like this cast. I'm intrigued. I know it's based on a historical event. Let me check it out. And when the final credits roll, like rolled, I was like, "Huh." I wasn't. I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't expecting it to be as as well done as it was. But you know, obviously, this is a conversation about Alien. But before I get there, I got to know. I mean, you you can't just drop like a, a top 100 list on me and then say, you know, tease a number one. What is that number one? Uh, Nashville. Nashville. Okay. Yeah. From uh, 1975. It's when, you know, when people say like, what's your favorite decade of, of filmmaking? Um, you know, I mean, they're all pretty, they all have their, their moments. Uh, certainly I, I think the nineties were, were pretty amazing. Uh, but that could also just be, I'm 40 now. So like the nineties are when I really started to like discover my love of film. So I'm just sort of biased towards that one anyway. But I would definitely say the 40, either the 40s or the 70s. Um, and given that like Jaws is in my top 10, Aliens in my top 10, and Nashville's number one, uh, I think I'm probably leaning towards the 70s. I mean, it was, it was a very special time in, at the very least, American filmmaking. Uh, and you got some really amazing films uh, at that time. And, and some really formative ones. You know, the idea that like, I think there is no modern filmmaking, like filmmaking right now would look very different if those films didn't exist. And, uh, yeah. So, so I'd say, yeah, the seventies are probably my, my favorite decade and Nashville is, and Nashville is that example where it, it came into my, my, my top hundred, I think at like number 30, uh, when I first saw, it, and then every time I made my top hundred, it just went up and up and up. And then finally, in I think in 20, 13 i was just like you know what and and it's so cliche but like my my favorite for a long time was citizen kane because i just think it's such a it's such a wonderful film and i know everybody does but ah, 
it's pretty great. And I really loved it. But there came a moment where I just like, you know, I think I as a film watcher have changed enough that I think I appreciate the sort of more pure, unfiltered humanity of Nashville as opposed to the very sleek um, uh, style of, of Citizen Kane. Not to suggest that Citizen Kane is is inhuman or cold, but uh, but it doesn't quite have the, the grit that, mm-hmm. that Nashville does. Sure. Sure. When it comes to Alien, obviously we're we're introduced to it at a certain time in our lives. I mean, for me, I watched it as a kid and fell in love with it. But for you, when did when did you discover it? When do you remember the first time you watched it, or your your initial reactions to the first time you saw it? So, like a lot of I mentioned, I'm I'm forty. For a lot of other people my age, including myself, um, we saw Aliens first. That was the film that, uh, you know, it came out in 86. It was still very fresh in people's minds for a while. There was a, an action figure line in the early 90s that I was always very excited about. Um, and so we saw that and it 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 seemed so self-contained. And, and my friends and I would play Aliens, you know, on the, on the playground. I saw it way too young, by the way. I saw it like I was probably seven. And even though Aliens in my, it doesn't quite have the the quite the horror elements of the first Alien, it's still pretty damn scary and uh, and intense. And so, but we still played Aliens uh, on the, on the playground. And uh, then I think as I got a little bit older, and I would rewatch Aliens over and over. It was my, I think it was you know one of my favorite movies of all time at the time. Uh, and then I think it was probably fifteen or sixteen. I specifically remember. It's back when grocery stores had a little video rental section and I was living in Denver at the time. And, uh, I think I rented it from either Safeway or King Supers in Denver. I don't remember exactly, but, uh, I like to throw I like to throw regional, uh, supermarkets in there. I know Safeway is a little bit more national, but King Supers is not. Um, and so any, uh, any Colorado listeners that you have will be like, Hey, King Supers fun. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so I think I rented it from the King Supers and, uh, watched it on VHS in my, my parents' basement. Again, I was probably 14 or 15 and I definitely, I definitely liked it. Like it really, even at the time I was sort of a budding film fan, but even then I could deter, I could, I might not not have been able to verbalize it, but I could tell it's like, Oh, this is different. This is different than aliens. Um, and so I, I really liked it and I was watching it late at night in, in my parents' basement and it was dark. And I was like, this is, this is kind of getting me a little bit. Um, and it's, it's a film. I think at the time I probably still would have said I liked aliens more probably for a, a couple of years, but I find, I found myself slowly, but surely, surely aliens started to kind of fade out, uh, as far as rewatch, you know, which one I'm going to rewatch and aliens started to fade in. And then it became a situation where I would watch alien maybe like once a year and aliens every few years. Um, and, and I do get the, the feeling, I do get the desire to watch aliens every once in a while now. And when I watch I'm like, yeah, this is still pretty good. You know, it's, it's nothing against, uh, it, my, my love of alien doesn't mean that I don't love aliens, but, uh, but yeah, just as, as far as who I am as a film fan, that first one watched at a fairly young age definitely did, uh, did shape me a little bit. 
and I, and I think made me a more patient. I think it made me a more patient film watcher mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. It, because it's a situation where I hate when people say it, but it's a situation where quote unquote nothing happens mm-hmm. for the first forty minutes. And to me, it's like, but that's that's the idea. That's the point. Right. Exactly. Like you, I did see Aliens first. I think I think I watched it like on ABC or CBS one night. Like all the the uh, the blood and guts, you know, kind of. Uh, omitted a little bit but I, I remember watching that loving that and then finding out that it was in fact a sequel and then you know convincing my dad to to rent the vhs so i could see alien but i think like a kid like like you i was a kid i think i did prefer aliens i think shit i think i preferred aliens up until i was about like 18 19 years old and then that transition started to change because i think around that same time i would have discovered the shining which also has kind of just a not, not not slow burn is the wrong way, but it's just kind of it's measured and it takes a little while for yeah. the rights to get going. Yeah, the, I think that's a, I you know the, those films came out within a year of each other. I think that again, the, it's that you get this sort of seventies mentality of just in some cases like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just boiling everything down to its purest form, and that's a situation where once it gets going, it just does not stop. But you get something like Alien and the shining and yeah, there's this meditative deliberate, you know, just sort of not, not even so much world building, although I guess there is that as well, but just sort of just tone building, like just really setting the stage, setting the tone for what's going to happen. And then just, and then eventually it's just starts happening. Now. So Tyler, I am curious, obviously this movie over the past shit, I can't believe it's over 40 years old. You know, it's continued to have continue to have relevance. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious, why do you think that is? Why is that? Why is this movie so relevant even today? I think I mean, for for a bunch of reasons. One is that. I think that it, it didn't want to necessarily be of its time. Uh, it nor was it particularly interested in showing all the different aspects of the future. The minute you get a science fiction movie that takes place in the future and, you, and, and people start to speculate about like, oh, people will probably be wearing clothes like this in the future, immediately, like immediately your, your film is going to be seen as dated. Because even if it's something like, you know, uh, even if it's something like this takes place in 2015, well, we hit 2015 and nobody's wearing this. Not even so much that as it is just people know like, oh, in the 1950s, People, we all thought that this is how people were going to look in the future. So if I see a movie from the 50s that has this look, it immediately declares itself as a film from the 50s. But when it comes right down to it, outside of maybe like Tom Skerritt's hair, which is a little hippie-ish, um, it really is kind of this unit, like the characters are dressed in sort of a universal kind of way. Um and and I like that it suggests that like the future maybe hasn't changed that much for the most part. Even even though there is space travel, and there are robots, at its core, people are still going to be like, ah, I just want to wear jeans, man. You know, like stuff like that. I feel like there's a universality to that uh, that everyone can relate to. And I think that's the other thing is that these are not heroic space explorers. They're not scientists. They're blue collar workers, and 
they, you know, there are a couple of them are just like, I, I don't, I don't want to do this unless you're paying me. If you want, you mm-hmm. if you want to pay mm-hmm. me more, great. And that's something that people can always relate to always. Oh, yeah. Um, and so this idea of like, of like, I'd rather not risk my life, but you know what, if you pay me a little more, sure, why not? So I think there's that, I think that stands the test of time to say nothing of this, of this idea of, of technology. I mean, most science fiction movies and I mean, obviously alien is a horror movie, but, uh, it is also firmly a science fiction movie with all the same themes that you find in science, in sci-fi good or bad, which is this idea of, technology being something that could eventually turn on us because it's not nearly as in our as in our control as we thought and this idea of corporate greed this idea that uh eventually like right now you know you get these these big companies and they make choices that you know are really just about their bottom line but because so much of this film is rooted in an emotional relatability, uh, we eventually get to this point where it's crew expendable, you know? And it's like, that doesn't feel like that big of a jump, especially it's like, okay, this is in the future. So it's like everything else feels real. So that kind of feels real too, because we all kind of agree that companies, especially the more they are able to control, the more liberties they will take. And the idea of, of not prioritizing the, the crew's lives uh, in any way, um, it speaks that, that, that view of, of corporate America does speak, it is something that's, that is, is universal going, you know, going as far back as the 1920s and 30s and up till right now. So I think there are a lot of things and, and there's the idea that I don't think Ridley Scott wanted to be particularly flashy in his visual effects. Um, instead, he wanted to sort of shroud them in darkness and again, just create this sense of dread as opposed to like, hey, look at this. Now look at this. The minute you start really trying to play up your visual effects, the moment that like that is the moment the film will start to look dated. And I think Ridley Scott was not interested in that uh so much as like he saw special effects as a means to an end, uh, not the end in and of themselves. And so because of all of these elements, um, not to mention the specific characters and character types are the types of people that we've probably met in our lives. And because of that, uh, there's a relatability to, to the situation of these characters. And so, um, so I think on, on every level it has, it has stayed relevant and stayed maybe even more so than that, it stayed relatable. Uh, and I think that's, I think that is maybe one of the reasons why alien worked so well at the time, because, you know, it came out. One thing that's always fascinating is like, man, you can, you can see the studio at work because you get star Wars in 77. And then in 79, you get alien star Trek, the black hole and any number of other things you can see this you can see the mentality which is holy shit look how much money this made and then they spent 1978 making all these space movies and then they all come out in 79 uh but alien is the one that i think was was much more interested in just kind of just existing and being 
relatable and believable as opposed to uh, trying to get at something bigger or trying to entertain people in a certain kind of way. Uh, I think it was just content to be what it is, which can always, which I think is always going to be refreshing. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I was thinking about that same, the same question that I asked you for myself as far as why that movie is so relevant. And, you know, obviously you tap into the, the, the corporate element and like greed and everything. What I also love about this movie is how it does kind of like play with expectations in the sense of who, who really our hero is. I, I, I love that everybody in the movie has kind of like a genderless name. I mean, they were just kind of referred mm-hmm. to by like their last names. Yeah. Obviously I don't even know if like Ripley is ever really referred to as Ellen Ripley. I think it's just Ripley in the movie. I don't know if anybody calls her Ellen at any time. I don't think her first name is, is really established until the second film. Yeah. So you have that element about it. So these people could be any anybody. Of yeah. course, this movie still plays into a little bit of that trope of like that quote unquote like final girl. Even though I think like Sigourney Weaver sure. was like thirty when she did this movie. I mean, yeah. nobody in this movie are like kids, right? I mean, Tom yeah. Skerritt, Ian Holm. I mean, uh, I mean, they're all. I mean, they were all well into their thirties or forties when they were shooting this movie, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean. Harrodine Stanton might have even been like in his fifties at this point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And if not, he's he's always always (laughs) if that, yes, I feel like he's always looked about 72. Yeah. And of course, I mean the movie, other themes, right? I mean, uh, the, the, the screenwriter, you know, what, what he said he was looking for within this movie. I mean, so much of this movie is like themes of like rape and, uh, Mm -hmm. like reproduction and, and the fact that, well, in fact, I want to get his words. I don't know if you've ever if you've ever heard this, but Dan O'Bannon said one thing that people are all disturbed about. Well, let me rephrase that. Dan O'Bannon said one thing that people are all disturbed about is sex. I said that's how I'm going to attack the audience. I'm going to attack them sexually, and I'm not going to go after the woman in the the women in the audience. I'm going to attack the men. I'm going to put every image that I can think of to make men in the audience cross their legs. Homosexual <laughs> oral rape, birth. The, the thing lays its eggs down your throat, the whole number. And that's really what this movie like, thematically is really kind of like going at, which is really interesting in the fact that in this film, you know, the, the, the women aren't the one that are, I mean, in the end, you know, like obviously Ripley is being chased down, but our first victim is a man and he's essentially impregnated. Right. And, and it's just yeah. kind of like thematically a really interesting interesting take because everybody knows when the thing pops out of its stomach right and just like kills kills him i mean it's it's an image that that you you can't watch a horror documentary without without even seeing right i mean it's just one of like those most like iconic like film moments yeah and it's it's definitely Ridley Scott definitely plays into that with some of his design and and you know employing hr giger to to design some of the alien stuff, like obviously the aliens, uh, head, uh, it looks extremely phallic. Uh, mm-hmm. plus when they're going, when they're going into the derelict spaceship, that looks very, very vaginal is the, right. the, 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 en- the entry. Um, and, and yeah, it is this idea where like the alien itself, despite being, d- despite being very sexual by design, it does not discriminate between men and women. It doesn't think in terms like, oh, women are the ones that give birth. It's like, okay, well, whatever being is sticking its head near the egg here, that's the one we're going to impregnate. Um, and then, 
obviously with Kane, like it just comes uh, bursting out of his chest. But then also Lambert, you know, because there are only two women and one of them survives. But like Lambert, boy, we don't even see we don't even see what happens to her. Mm-hmm. We hear mm-hmm. it and it yep. sounds horrible and it sounds very, it sounds is probably, it sounds very, very rapey. Right. Uh, the, 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 the sounds that she's making is horrible. And, and you also get this, this shot of like the alien's tail slowly moving be- between her legs. That is actually a shot from a different death, but whatever they, they cut it in for hers. And, <laughs> uh, and so we're fine. But yeah, and so it's it really is uh, this this level playing field, uh, which I always appreciate. Um, this idea that when we think of when we think of horror, and especially the idea of like this one thing is killing people one at a time, we tend to think in terms of slasher movies. We think that the people involved are younger. Uh, they've done things to endanger themselves. Whatever it is, um, here, yeah, these are just working class people and they're they're all in their 30s or 40s they've been at this a while they don't necessarily freak out it's more just they they try to be pragmatic about things uh there are men there are women there might be some kind of on uh, you know on board there might be some kind of sexual chemistry between characters the alien doesn't care about any of that it it just cuts through all of that and and I think that's one of the things that I that I think is particularly frightening about the film is that, you know, when you look at Leatherface or Jason, and, and don't get me wrong, I I adore Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but uh, when you look at like most slasher movies, like the slasher has his own motivations for doing what he's doing. The alien species, it's only about survival, and the way it survives is to. Pl- you know, impregnate someone with one of its eggs. It doesn't care at all about what's happening on board. It Mm -hmm. doesn't care if you're a man or a woman. It just cares that you are a warm body that it can use as an incubator. There's something very dehumanizing about that. Yeah. And, and I think that can be a very disturbing idea, whether it be, and I get, I think this is something that I, that I mentioned in the documentary is any, one of the frightening things about creature features, and I feel like Alien, while not exclusively that, fits into it. It's this idea: it's like they, we're just food, we're just sustenance, or a means to reproduce. Whatever it is, they 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 have no stake in the game. You know, the, the we mentioned we were talking about Jaws earlier. The shark doesn't care that that kid is eight. Mm-hmm. You know, almost any almost any other like killer in a movie might take. Uh, a kid's age into account and be like, Oh, this is too young or whatever. A shark doesn't care. It doesn't care that it's Quint who's in his fifties. It doesn't care if it's Chrissy Watkins and it doesn't care if it's an eight year old boy. It just eats. That's all it Mm -hmm. is. And the alien is, is a very similar type of creature. And I think that really gets to this, this core fear of ours, which is this, the idea that like we're at the top of the food chain and we we run this whole thing, but the animals don't actually know that. Yeah. And and in the right circumstances, like there's a movie coming out. Again, I'm I'm dating the uh, the the time of recording because this isn't going to come out until October. But as of today, uh, there's a movie coming out in the next couple of weeks called Beast, which is about a lion that's that's trying to uh, right. kill Idris Elba. I can't wait. I can't wait uh, because I'm a I'm a sucker for a creature feature because it is just this this 
equalizer. This it just levels everything, and suddenly it's it's yeah. Animals are going to do what animals are going to do. The alien is going to do what it's going to do. It doesn't really have vendettas. We don't really start to see that until the alien queen in the second film. This alien is just doing what it does, yeah. and we happen and these characters happen to be the ones that it's doing it to. And it's very disturbing. Yeah, it's very disturbing. Very disturbing. One final alien question before we transition into the pop quiz, and then uh, we go do our things. I know you got you've got kids, and I've got a dog that just won't stop howling. I don't know if you can hear oh, that in the background. I can't. Yeah. I can't. So everything's fine Good. over here. So I think you already stated because I mean this one's in your your top ten, but I'm, I'm curious to know just for definitively alien versus aliens. You uh, you 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 camp alien. Or you're like, they're both great. This is a horror film. Aliens is an action movie. I'll say this. Alien is in my top 10. Aliens is not in my top 100. So my preference is definitely the first one. Mm -hmm. Aliens is extremely watchable. It has some great performances, some great sequences. um, And I think it does sort of continue in a logical way what the first Alien is doing. And I I appreciate that James Cameron... um, is is willing rather for for his sequel rather than just try and make the same movie although i will say that a lot of the story beats are the same um as they tend to be with any alien movie there's only so many uh things you can do with with the alien concept but um but i like that he branches out and rather than just have it be another people uh, another small group of people on a spaceship uh who are making do it's people that are extremely capable uh but they still get decimated right um i believe your line in the documentary was that it doesn't it doesn't care what what weapons you have and it doesn't care what your, the strategies you have or something i'm i'm paraphrasing what you said that's but, about right get, yeah. well remembered good job i don't remember what i said in the documentary <laughs> what I didn't. um well done um but yeah so my preference is definitely alien uh at this point by by a wide margin and and people will say, and I agree that uh, the first a- Alien is more horror, and the second one is more action. But there's still pl- there are still horrific moments in Aliens, as there needs to be, because the na- the, the the nature of this of these creatures is horrific. And and I like that James Cameron is willing to play that up. I'm reminded of the the beeps getting closer, and you just see. Oh, yeah. I mean that that's. That's one of like the more like terrifying images from the entire film, and it's fucking horrendous, especially when it's like they're right on top of us and you can't see them, and they you know climb up yeah. the, the rafter in there. Oh, yeah. it's great. Yeah. Well, and and James Cameron, I mean, that first Terminator. People think of the Terminator franchise as like this action thing, which it is, and the first Terminator has plenty of action, but it has a lot of horror beats too. And you think of like the first Terminator and Aliens, and the, my one one of my big takeaways is like, boy, I wish James Cameron would get back to that, mm-hmm. get back to something that has like some genuine horror story beats and and moments. Um, but yeah, oh, absolutely. Like the beeps getting closer and as they're getting closer, that means that they're closer together. And so like, it it might as well be the beating of your heart really. Uh, so that when it arrives, it's like, I don't even know what to do now. Yes. It's, (laughs) it's absolutely. All right. Well, Tyler, thank you very much. Uh, I am now putting you on the hot seat. We're going to give you a little pop quiz. This one's easy. I try not to go because on average people get about three I think you're going to get, I think you're going to get all of these, well, at least four, but here we go. Okay. Approximately, 
And if you if you need if you need like a multiple choice on this one, let me know. But approximately okay. how many minutes of screen time do, does the xenomorph get? Oh my! It, it, you mean just like in the in the first film? Mm-hmm. Oh boy! I'll, I'll I'll put it this way: A one through three minutes, B four through six minutes, C seven through nine, D more than ten minutes. I was going to say two to three minutes. You're, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be too far off. Apparently, it's a total of four minutes. So just only four minutes of screen time does that xenomorph get? Okay, hang on now. Let's see here. Are we including the chestburster sequence? I think so. I think that's what's included. Okay, if that's the case, all right. Because yeah. I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about the full-grown alien. In which case, uh, sure, absolutely. Okay, four minutes. I I, I buy. Without yeah. that chestburster, I do think it drops closer down to two. You're probably right. I'm gonna I'm gonna give that one to you. What's the name of the cat? Oh, Jones. Jones. Yeah. Uh, the name of what is the name of the company funding the mission? Well, I don't know if the I don't remember if the if the name of the company is revealed until the second film, but it's Whalen Yutani. Mm-hmm. Uh, the name of the ship. I think they only I think they only call it uh, the company uh, right, in exactly. the first film. It's the company. The company. Um, yeah. Uh, the name of the ship is the Nostromo, and I think the name of the escape pod is the Narcissus. All right. Well, that is question number five. Hey, so, all right. <laughs> uh, then I'll, I'll just throw this one out there. I always try to give one extra that's never really in the film. You have to just know the franchise a little bit. But okay. approximately what year does this film take place? Oh, that's a tough one. I, I did know this for a while and now I don't. I want to say like 2150 or something. You're really close. It's 2122. So it's okay. 100 years from now. Got it. Yeah. But again, without, if you, if you hadn't seen, what is it? I guess alien three. I don't think that's, I think it's established that year. And then you figure out it was right after. And we knew that aliens was like 54 years or something after 57. Yeah. 57 years (laughs) after this one. Thanks nerd. Uh, (laughs) I never wanted, I never wanted to be that person, but given the nature of the section we're in, I felt it appropriate that I could correct you on that. Of course. Of course. Uh, Anything else that you want to talk out, uh, talk about on aliens before we, we just wrap up and uh, just see what, you know, what, where people can find you and everything. Uh, I don't think so. Just that, uh, you know what? One thing I will say is that I've seen this film in pretty much every format I've, I've, I saw it certainly on VHS, uh, you know, pan and scan, which is, uh, not the best way to see it, but Mm -hmm. it's the first way I saw it. Um, I saw it for, I think it was the, the film's 20, 25 year re-release. So I saw that in theaters. Uh, of course I've seen it on DVD. Um, I'll say Blu-ray, the, the Blu-ray version that is out is so gorgeous. It is, it's by far the best I've seen of the film Mm -hmm. because I, unless they're willing to like sort of remaster, not to, not to change anything, but unless they're willing to like remaster uh, a theatrical, um, uh, release, then this Blu-ray is the, is the best you're going to get because I don't, it's similar in many ways to the movie, the thing from 1982, John Carpenter's film. Um, in that I don't think of it as a particularly colorful film. And then you watch, and then you watch it uh, on on DVD, and they didn't they didn't enhance anything, they didn't change anything, they just 
remastered it so it looks as good as possible. And it's a surprisingly colorful film right. and very sharp. And so I would highly recommend if, if, if people, either if you haven't seen the film or you haven't seen it in a while, check it out on Blu-ray because it is definitely that. And also that Blu-ray set, the, the, the Blu-ray like Alien Anthology, which is the first four films, that whole thing I recommend up and down. It's like one of the best Blu-ray investments I've ever made because for every film they have, they have like a three hour retrospective documentary and it's marvelous. So yeah, check it out. Awesome. All right. All right. Uh, Tyler, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap this one up, but before we depart, uh, yeah, obviously I said, well, what's next for you? You said, well, shit, I don't know, but, uh, where, so where can people <laughs> find you? So, I, I mean, a bunch of places you can find me at battleshippretension.com. Uh, and while you're there feel, so we, we've been doing a podcast every week for, for 15 years and most of those, of those episodes are still available. Uh, we have a Patreon as well. Um, and then, uh, we, we do sell a book that we put out, um, a year ago called the, uh, the 101 best movies of the 2010s, uh, which was voted on by our listeners. But then we went through and wrote uh, extensively about each one. So it's, uh, I'm fairly proud of that one. Uh, so you can find that at battleshippretension.com. And then, uh, you can find both of my documentaries at the, on the rediscover television streaming platform, which at the moment is unfortunately only available on Roku, but I believe in the next month or two, uh, it will expand to every streaming platform, but you can always watch it just on your computer as well. You can also just rent it on Vimeo for, I think like five bucks. Uh, mm -hmm. rent, rent, uh, the Valley of the shadow on Vimeo for like five bucks. And it's also making the, the film festival rounds, uh, playing at various, uh, horror film festivals, which is a lot of fun. That's cool. Um, you travel so around yeah. to any of them? Uh, no, unfortunately there's, uh, you know, I can't do much traveling these days cause of yeah. the whole, you know, parent thing. You gotta be a parent um, now. I know, but, uh, but they, but it, you know, there are, there are some LA festivals that we've submitted it to and they haven't come up yet. Like the, 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 we haven't been informed if they, if it's been accepted yet, but, uh, if it does, then I will definitely go to those. Cause I'd love to see how it plays. Awesome. All right. Tyler Smith. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Again, major, major, major thanks to Tyler for hopping on the podcast. Um, pretty safe to say that that dude knows his stuff, right? Hopefully you had a great time um, going on this journey with us. And I do want to thank you and thank everybody that takes the time to listen to this podcast. I really do appreciate it. So take a look at the show notes. And if you aren't already subscribed, please subscribe to the podcast. But within the show notes, there will be information on links on the film, links on Stamper Cinema. And of course, I will include a link for, for Tyler Smith's podcast as well. But that's it. Let's get this out and you all have a happy Halloween. It is, again, it, it, it's bullshit that we don't get this day off, but whatever, whatever. If I were king of the world, it'd be different. But anyway, uh, we'll see you next time on another episode of Stanford Cinema. Mm -hmm.